Welcome back, my dears. Uh, I hope, however, that time was spent, there was a sense of being nourished um, and settled a little bit, perhaps. And as I said before, we'll just move right into the sit. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes or drop the gaze. Allowing the body to come into a posture that allows you to feel energetically upright and alert. For some of us, the body might be best served lying down. That's fine. But we're inclining energetically towards these teachings that are deeply liberatory. Even if it's just for a moment. This is the, these are the steps to the path of peace that Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about. So just allowing, again, yourself to arrive into the body as we did in the arriving sit. Feeling your feet on the earth, allowing your body to rest on the earth. Again, soaking in the support that is around us physically, energetically, even if we may not feel it. We can feel isolated and alone. Imagining and feeling into the reality of the earth that is beneath us, the trees that are around us. Energies of the heavens that balance the energies of the earth holding us here. And for the, our anchor of the sit today, I want to play with the water element. It's been raining a lot <laughs> here in California. It's going to rain a lot more next week. And I know it's wet in other parts of the U.S. And um, weather is what it is. But uh, I'm going to ask if it feels helpful to call to mind an image, whether it's the ocean or a mountain stream, a river, something that's moving. It's still forest pond, maybe, but there's not a, that much movement in that pond. What I love about working with a water element is being able to lean back into the sense of flow and fluidity. So if there's a body of water that might actually exist, that's sort of your perfect running water image. Just allowing yourself to really metaphorically drink that in. What's the air smells like? Is it in the mountains? Is it a, um, a spring that's running through the desert? Um, allowing there to be a precision of detail about this body of water. Are there rocks? The water moves over the rocks, the play of the lights, again, smells, sounds, sounds of the water, maybe other sounds in this environment, any taste, if it's an ocean, is there a taste of salt? Great, another great line by John Adonio, I wish to live as the river does, surprised by its own unfolding. And just allowing ourselves to kind of, in the watching of the water, feeling that within our own form, this body is 
78% water. The brain's 80% water. It's a lot of water. The earth is, I think, 75% water. These aren't accurate, but they're ballparkish. So this water element is foundational to our life, yeah. So it is in the external world, and so it is within us, the movement of life-saving movement of blood, the saliva in our mouths, the moisture in our eyes. The mouth and eyes might be its most tangible way to feel the water element in the body. As a visual, it may be helpful to imagine the blood moving through veins, capillaries, and all the magical things that the blood does, moving back and forth the heart. Of course, thoughts will come in, judgments, plans, questions, doubts, comparisons, list making. Okay. And then bring you gently, gently, just bring the attention back to either this image of this moving body of water or to the sensation of this water element within this very form. Again, whether it's just playing with the feel, the sensation of the saliva in your mouth or again, moisture in your eyes. You can feel into the heartbeat. That's the movement of the blood now. The heart beating. Again, as we almost align ourselves or make allies with the water movement in our image, allowing really to, for lack of a better word, kind of just merge with that movement of the water. There's a strength and a surrender. You know, I mean, remarkable canyons have been formed by this water source. This flow of water, sharp edges, moved over by the persistence and consistency of this flow of water. Ourselves to be surprised by the unfolding of our own lives. Just as the river may be surprised by the unfolding nature of the course of the water. And just noticing what it feels like in the body as you allow yourself to identify as much as feels helpful with this water element, this movement, this flow, this persistence. Please remember there's no such thing as a bad fit. We come, we take our seats, and we see how it is. We meet ourselves in this moment and in the next moment. To stay with, if it's helpful, the sense of embodying, of knowing the embodied sense of this fluid motion that's within our own form. 
that's around us. Allowing that to be the sense of this, as it is externally, so it is within. We are a part of this natural world. We're not separate. And again, in as much as we feel, but it's leaning into the sense of flow, fluidity, and beauty.
It's always lovely to sit together. I just wanted to know there's a uh, a yogi sent a, a message about my my volume um, being too soft. I, so I have a different mic system on, and hopefully it's better. And if it's not, let me know, and I'll we will keep making this better so you don't have to strain to hear me. And my apologies for that. So does it sound okay now? Okay. Okay. Sweet. Um, so, and also really appreciate the, the, that feedback. It's totally helpful. So thank you. Um, and today I wanted to kind of, I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> but it's kind of challenging out in the world these days. And um, this uh, landing with kind of a continually, um, uh, just hard, uh, that these are challenging times. And I want to, lean a little bit into grief to explore it as as its own doorway into finding freedom and i do feel like all these challenges again whether they're external they're happening on the world stage or the national stage or just within our own personal lives our own bodies uh how to allow these opportunities for uh understanding uh, and awareness uh, the rawness that can come when things are so challenging and how that can be such a beautiful um, a threshold, something we spoke about last week, uh, the notions of what what are the thresholds, paying attention to the thresholds and being able to note in the, the challenging nature of when things are challenging, again, whether within the body, health stuff, uh, family stuff, concerns with friends, um, in the world itself, how do we how do we move through it with as much tenderness and skill as possible? And I think grief can be one of those tricky things that we um, might not want to go near. And sometimes it's so prevalent. I was listening to Tarbrock and Frank Otisaki. Uh, they were in conversation about it, and Frank was naming some of his losses. If you don't know him, he's an amazing teacher. Um, works a lot with hospice and transitioning people. Um, from this world into the next, and was speaking how the uh, that there's the grief of things that we lose, people that we lose, um, relationships, um, houses, the, the conditions, but also the grieving that which we never got to live, lives that we thought we were going to live that we didn't. Um, the way that that can be a grasping. Uh, the I think it's the either Joseph Campbell or Robert Ply's life of when will you stop living the life you think you should be living and live the life you you have. And yet in that transition of recognizing, oh, these things that I thought were going to be a part of my life are not, there's grief there. And being able to honor and fold in the, uh, the kind of capital G griefs and the loss of someone beloved to us. And the sort of the small grief, just of how hard it seems like it's so hard. Maybe it has always been this way, but it doesn't seem like it has always been this hard. Um, and this sort of relentless pressure that we're under uh, the fast-pacedness of of how the world is, and it's, I do believe that our our nervous system really can't keep up with the pace of um, our lives, and so that there and there might be grief. And how do we honor it as like, oh yeah, this too? As I tend to talk more about equanimity and joy, but also wanting to fold in and anger, but also fold in the importance of recognizing when there is grief and being able to touch into it. And um, always makes me think of David White's uh, somewhat iconic poem, The Well of Grief. Uh, those 
who will not slip beneath a still surface in the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. And this beautiful image, sort of this, this well of grief, can we allow ourselves to flip under it to become familiar with this cool darkness? Uh, another talk um, I was listening to, uh, Ananda uh, Ayabodhi, and she was sharing the, the tale from the suttas of one of the uh, first free women, which is Maddie Weingast's beautiful book on uh, the poetry of the early nuns, those who found enlightenment. And this woman's name was... Uh, Pakarta, P-A-R, no, P-A-T, Patakara, P-A-T-A-C-A-R-A. And her story, uh, briefly, is she was born into a wealthy family. Her parents wanted to marry her off to a suitable, um, equally wealthy family, and she had none of that and had fallen in love with a servant in the household. And despite the parents' effort to lock her away to prevent this from happening, she and her Lover slipped away to go live in the woods. Um, her lover was too scared to ever go near the town again for fear that he would be punished. And so they lived in this hut. Life was hard in the hut, um, but they were together and they had one baby. She got pregnant. She said, I want to go back to, to my mother's house, which was custom to have my baby at the mother's house. And they're on their way there. And I think a big storm comes and they're unable to go. So they go back. Um, she has a baby on the side of the road. They go back to the hut. Two years later, she has another baby. They want to go. Uh, something prevents them from going. Similar stories. She has the baby on the side of the road. And the husband, her partner, says, oh, well, let me just go into the, the woods. I'll make us a hut. I'll, I'll make a shelter somewhere that will be safe. And she's with her infant baby and the older son, who's two. Husband never comes back. Next morning, she walks into the woods, finds his body. Can't believe it. He's dead. She heads for home. Uh, has to cross a river, a uh, raging river. She has two babies, can't carry them both at the same time. You can imagine where this is going. Walks over with one baby, puts the infant down, goes back to get the other. Eagle sweeps in, takes the infant. Uh, she gestured wildly, meaning to stop the eagle. The son thought it meant for him to cross the river. He gets swept away. She goes, finds her way to her home village after losing both her babies. Uh, asked a stranger coming from the village, tell me the news of this house. The guy's like, no, no, any other house but that. I'll tell you news of why, what happened. I don't want to speak about it. Tell me what happened. The roof of caved in. She lost all of her family. She gets to town. Um, it happens to be she's from the town where the Buddha is, uh, Savarna. Uh, and she's crazed with grief, out of her mind, to clothes torn, can't speak, and she shows up at the hall or wherever the Buddha's teaching, and people are like, oh no, crazy person's coming. And the Buddha says, oh, daughter, come close. Uh, what troubles you? And she tells the story. His words to her are, neither children nor a father nor any other relatives are a shelter. Relatives are no protection for those who have been affected by death, Yeah, which is all of us. And in those words, as seemed to happen all the time, in the time of the Buddha, she uh, had sort of the first uh, blush of awakening, sort of a stream entry into a sense of ease and mindfulness kind of came back into herself. But it was the enormity of her grief 
and the vulnerability of her grief, as the story goes, that allowed for that awakening to happen at hearing the Buddha's words. In this way that Leonard Cohen's line of but, um, where the crack is, that's where the light comes in. And we know this, we hear about it, but when we're in the throes, when things are so hard, it's hard to remember them. And I think that in the story, so then she becomes a nun um, and practices, and they'll share one of her poems in a minute. But this, um, again, to pull from last week, this notion of a threshold. And when our losses feel like they are heartbreaking, or these transitions in our lives that we didn't really want. Perhaps we didn't choose them, but they're uh, part of the path, part of the unfolding of our lives. How can we embrace this of, oh, yeah, this, there is um, there's a heartbreak here. And being able to have um, almost like a ritual awareness of, oh, this is grief. And grief needs to be companioned and sat next to and made space for. That in a culture that really tells us to like, hurry up, uh, keep moving. Um, the counter move to say, no, wait, can I sit here beside the well of grief or descend beneath the, the waters to really understand what what's here? Because of course, the measure, the magnitude of our grief is in relation to the magnitude of our love. Yeah, we can't have one with the other. And the Ajahn saying is on one of the walls that uh, on the land at Spirock, if you let go a little, uh, you'll have a little bit of freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you'll have complete freedom. When we love someone, that's it's always going to hurt, I think. In the story, as Ananda Bona, uh, I'm sorry, but she sort of transcended grief. But I think it's because there was such a complete, um, uh, and it, it's such a total immersion. And those of you familiar with Deepama, who used to teach at IMS, and Joseph and Sharon and a number of other teachers uh, sat with her um, in India, she too lost a lot of uh, family members in close proximity. And that was also her doorway into the Dharma. Sort of, she couldn't get out of bed. Her friends just said, look, go sit with this guy. He'll help you. And it was that was her entry point into, into the teachings. And again, it's allowing that which feels like it's going to break us or that which brings up so much vulnerability to be that which can be the catalyst to what else is possible. And certainly my first retreat was sad. It's like back in my 20s, like <laughs> things were just so challenging. Uh, what else was possible? Actually, I was in my 30s. But that way that we can come to come to Buddhism as maybe this will help. And the teachings I have found to be like, oh, this is enormously helpful as a way of working with loss as part of life, right? All that we hold on to, we will lose. All that arises passes away. And understanding this truth or that chant of impermanence, um, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To abide in this truth brings great happiness. It allows us to stop fighting against a loss or that it's not right or it's not fair. It's like, oh no, this is just part of how this, this realm is. So the poem, um, from uh, Patakara, um, this is from Maddie Wanigas' book, The First Free, First Free Women. Farmers turn up the soil, plant seeds, and wait. All by itself, water pours down from the sky and turns earth into food. After all these years sleeping on the ground, waking before dawn and begging for every meal, where's my harvest? Late one evening, I was washing my feet after another long day of sitting and walking,
the water poured over my feet and onto the ground and I let my mind go and it flowed downhill with the water towards my little hut. I went inside, sat on the bed and lowered the wick of the lamp. All by itself, the flame went out. And I'm um, absolutely channeling Ananda, uh, Ananda by Ayabodhi uh, in this talk because the way she spoke about this I felt to be so helpful and sort of um, unpacking the poem a little bit but as in watching those waters flow downhill as we do when we watch rivulets of water some go long right there's a long stream it can go on for a long time some are not it's short goes in underground and some are medium and she points to right that's how our lives are some of some lives of those we love and know those we don't know are short, some are medium, some are long. We don't really know where we are, but that for this nun, that realization of, oh, this is this is just the natural world and her being able to identify with the motion of the water and in these rivulets that some descend quickly, some go longer and some go stretch on uh, for much longer. That's how our lives are. And again, that kind of harmonious balance of, oh, um, it's kind of the natural order of things. Yeah. Again, one of the first uh, truths that we know is this law of impermanence. And when we can allow that, oh, that truth to be felt, to be embodied, freedom can come. You know, that um, I don't know if I have it. There was a, a line I heard in one of these talks this morning. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, just that, uh, it's something along the lines of when the the light of impermanence is clear, there's no need. Um, the struggles lessen along the idea of when there's our sharp clarity of mind that these moments are precious. The BS kind of falls away. Like we can stop perseverating around who said what, who did this, what's not working on the mundane level and really being able to live with the reality of this is a precious moment, what are we doing with it? You know, how am I, what's occupying my mind? But the, a lot of the chatter and perseverating and trying to figure things out when held next to the truth of, oh, sweetie, we don't know when it's going to be our last moment. There can be this kind of um, shaking in, of a clarity of precision of, okay, how do I want to be spending my time? A precision and, and intentionality. Um, so not surprisingly to pull a Mary Oliver poem invitation oh do you have the time to linger for just a little while out of your busy and very important day for the goldfinches that have gathered in the field of thistles for a musical battle to see who can sing the highest note or the lowest or the most expressive of mirth or the most tender their strong blunt beaks drink the air as they strive melodiously, not for your sake and not for mine and not for the sake of winning, but for the sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, this, they say, this is a serious thing. Just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world, I beg of you, do not walk by without pausing to attend to this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could be what Rilke meant when he wrote, you must change your life. Speaking of Rilke, you who let yourselves feel, you who let yourselves 
feel, enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins behind you. Excuse me, blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins. You are how, yes, you are the bow that shoots the arrows and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth. For heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourselves to the air, to what you cannot hold. And this invitation to be aware of the weightiness of the earth, the trees, parts of our lives, what can we put down? That that in of itself, that weight is not, uh, is not a refuge that serves us, but can bind us and not allow us to move through uh, stages of grief or anger or any of the afflictive emotions or just can um, serve as blocks. Yeah. That in an ideal world to be able to align with, again, the flow of water through a river, through a creek, through a stream, that we can allow ourselves to surrender to the momentum of our own lives. Uh, one more time. This is another one of uh, Tatakara's poems for 30 nuns. So farmers take the grain from the earth and branches from the trees. They crack open one with the other and take what's left to feed their families. You are all like unripe grain. Take time to grow, then leave the ground behind and let your husks be stripped away. I promise less is more. So Patatara told us, so we sat on the ground like unripe grain. We gave ourselves to the path and the path broke us apart. What we feared most is now seen for what it is, true peace, freedom. All that broke apart was the darkness we had for so long been calling our whole world. Element, shift gears here, ask you to close your eyes. And just taking a moment to kind of come back to your body, noticing any felt sensations or kind of what landed in terms of, as we uh, talk about this movement, potential movement of grief and honoring, of these teachings that come around lost And actually for a visual, for a, a guided visualization here, we'll see if this is helpful, but to imagine each of us sitting with our backs against a giant well. So we have the support of our Dharma sisterhood with our backs against this ancient rock well. And imagine that our individual, uh, let's say, our, to imagine our own crafts of grief 
pouring into this well. Yeah. A grieves of things undone in this lifetime that we may never get to do. A grief of those we've loved who have lost what we have lost. Imagine that feeling a chalice of its own, and we pour the chalice into this well of grief that can hold so much of our griefs, that which we are grieving, knowing that this well steps down into the earth and is alchemized, that the earth will utilize all this energy of the grief for her own use, though it's not stagnant in any way. But this sense of being able to share our grief without necessarily sharing the stories, but the awareness that as each of us move through this life, we have lost people we love. Things did not work out the way we thought they might. This is the human condition, yeah. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Things come into our lives and they leave, you know, that rhythm again, all that arises passes away. And whatever there may be a collective, um, within the body, a collected sense of grief that you might wish to release. And imagine you have your own chalice, this grief can be poured in. We take that chalice, we pour it into this beautiful ancient well. Almost like that water, that well water is singing its own song that can alchemize the grief. And being able to feel the support of the well against our backs. And understanding that, of course, in this human realm, there is grief. We all feel it. Some more acutely at times than others. We don't get through this life without it. Yeah. And how do we utilize this vulnerability of heart, this awareness of the truth of impermanence to allow us to see the beauty and preciousness of this moment and the next? That this grief is a tenderizing process when we allow it. It is opening us up. It is allowing us to feel the depth of our love. It can be almost uh, connecting into the, the Tonglin practice of as we allow ourselves to feel this grief, pour it into the well, allow that water or that water song to be the soothing balm for our hearts. It's not just the, our Dharma sisters in this Tonga today and, and other weeks feeling this grief, but this is all humans. And imagining a ritual in which all beings could have their own chalice of grief, pour it into this endless well where it can be alchemized, the songs can be heard. 
and the space that this acknowledged grief creates can be filled again with a sense of awareness of this precious moment, this precious life. What's beautiful? What touches you? What matters? Just going to invite each of us to linger here a little. If it feels helpful to have a felt sense, if it works, of imagining sort of pouring the grief into the chalice, chalice into the well. This ritualized process of honoring this grief, allowing it to be in motion to be fluid. Knowing that this tenderizing vulnerability that comes from acknowledging and making space for the grief allows us to see more clearly, to love more deeply, and perhaps live more fully. So I'm going to stop there. And I appreciate your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.